Weekend Variety Wireless. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition, and a special hello. If you've downloaded the podcast, it is podcast hour by hour. Coming up later tonight, something kind of freaky. How big can a tsunami get? A huge wave. It looked like just a big wall of water. He threw me a life preserver and he's... He said, son, start praying. I had 40 fathoms of anchor chain. Came to the end of the 40 fathoms, just snapped it like a string. And then we were free, and but we were still on the front of the wave. We were swept up over the land and up above the trees. That's where I assumed that we were going to end up. He was talking about a 500-foot wave. He's not kidding, is he? Uh, you know, 500-meter wave in, in 1958, so uh, it's like oh. 1,700 feet. <laughs> that happened in Alaska in the 1950s, apparently. The risk of this happening in the future is uh, rapidly increasing uh, due to something called climate change. Anyway, the story of these landslip tsunamis, they just can reach massive proportions. Amazing that somebody even survived to talk about it. Alrighty, oh, and also some neat stuff on New Zealand's landslip history. Did you know New Zealand uh, has the largest known terrestrial landslip ever? Uh, there is evidence for it. We'll point you to it, and you can go and have a look when we speak with geoscientist Sam McColl from Massey University. Alrighty, folks. Hope you're having a lovely early evening, or if you're listening at a later time, uh, well, just a hello and hope you're good. Science stuff this hour. Grant Christie's got weird things to talk about. Do shadows of ancient black holes, um, uh, have they come from another universe? Why does the Earth rotate? And a bunch of other exciting stuff. But I tell you what, Sean Hendy from the Physics Department for Science Report after this, he's got a wild, a few wild things to talk about. Scandals in physics and the fascinating stories. Some of these physicists have, uh, I think they've made up stuff, have just disappeared. Sean Handy will explain from the past and some ongoing ones as well. Uh, Science Report with Sean Handy next. Good evening. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Yeah, science, science, sciencey, science. Absolutely. Yeah, he is Sean Handy uh, from the physics department at Auckland University. How's that building? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, yeah. actually, yeah, it's not a bad place to, to hang out. Yeah. Um, yeah. They read that it it's had a fit out about seven, eight years ago, um, and it's pretty nice, yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Uh, now, let's get on to the science stories from this week. You're addressing a few 
controversies, scandals in physics. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a new one um, that's just come out. So so I've been sort of pondering some of the things that have come up in the last twenty years in physics uh, that that have raised a few eyebrows. You know, sometimes sometimes actually fraudulent, um, and sometimes just a result of mistakes that that people have made but have not been willing to share. And maybe also a result of special wishing, wanting something yeah, to be true. Yeah, that's right. When you when you really want to win that Nobel Prize, right? You mm. you maybe don't scrutinise your own work with as no, a much care as you would otherwise. Right. But yeah, going so going back. So the first one I thought we could talk about was this. This is this is one that was really big about twenty years ago. So there was this young German physicist, Jan Schoen. Um, and he was he was hot stuff around the year two thousand, and and the big the big stuff in physics back then was uh, making uh, electronic devices from organic materials. Of course, you know these days, you know a lot of people have an OLED TV at home, um, which which is an organic LED. So that's the the light emitting diode, and that's actually made out of organic compounds. So twenty years ago, this was really cutting edge stuff. You know, mm. can we make semiconductor devices out of plastics essentially? And um, and so he got dubbed the plastic fantastic, because he was he was knocking these devices out, you know, and and publishing them in Nature, uh, the the reports of these devices in Nature and Science, you know, once every couple of weeks, uh, which was which was you know, fantastic. <laughs> right, he's a rock star. He's an absolute rock star. But things started to unravel when um, someone someone was comparing the data between two of his papers. So he'd, he'd published, you know, a bunch of papers on different types of devices, and someone noticed that the, that the noise in the data between two papers appeared to be identical. Oh, now, and know, that's an unlikely thing. That's an unlikely thing. So you know, when we when we when we build a device in physics or do any sort of experiment, there's always there's always some randomness, right? The, the, we don't build perfect electronic devices. Each one will be idiosyncratic. It'll have you know small features that are different, mm-hmm. um, and make that device unique. And, and if we make our measurements precise enough, we can see that in this noise. Mm-hmm. And plus, just you know, thermal noise, right? So so. Uh, if you're running a, de- a device at room temperature, there'll be there'll be noise from the vibration of atoms uh, that, that that are at room temperature. Is that like a fingerprint? Yeah. Well, so no, <laughs> it'll ah. be random, um, ah. right? So 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 from one moment to the next, you'd expect it to change, um, or for one device to the next. Well, actually, yeah, the thermal noise isn't a fingerprint, but you could. Character, you know, particular devices may retain some of the features that they might see over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, devices degrade as well. So if you put them on the shelf, you know, the characteristics will change over time. So, so you know, you really shouldn't see the same noise twice, right? And 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 actually, what was what was being seen in these two papers was the same noise noise in completely different devices. So these weren't even supposed to be the same device, and the same noise was showing up. What was going on? Well, you know, we've never got to the bottom of it. Really? Because Schoen has never really said exactly what he was doing. But probably he was faking the noise and he was faking the data from his devices. Now, he had, he was in a really interesting position because he actually had two jobs. He had a joint appointment. He was at Bell Labs in the US mm. and he was working at the University of Konstanz in Germany and so he, he'd sort of show up at one lab and say oh look you know I built this great device back in Germany and he'd tell his American colleagues and, and they'd kind of they'd go oh gosh that's that's really interesting you know we couldn't have done that here and then he'd be back in Germany telling his German collaborators I made this great device back in Bell Labs um, and so he was pulling the wool over both 
sets of eyes in these two different institutions. So no one, no one that was close to him and working working around him ever really twigged as to what was going on because he was always in the other office if you know what I mean far out it's yeah. like people who live double lives yeah so it was families. it was a, it was a bit of a double life and and um yeah and but it was it was kind of a, 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 a there was a um a little element of genius to what he was doing because people knew these devices were possible right I mean it was it was people had done the theory they knew that sooner or later we were going to make these organic devices and Shun just decided well given these things are going to come along anyway someone's going to make them why don't I just get in first <laughs> right and then everybody else will catch up and they'll appear to verify my work oh. and so that's how we got away so it was you know there was, there was a there was a touch of genius in, and he build in this what you call noise to, so he was to, probably he was probably just just fabricating it, just okay. using a random number generator, or maybe just doing it by hand, putting but these. But it's a level of detail. Not the, the person on the street wouldn't really consider. You wouldn't. It. You wouldn't know. You know, on the street, you wouldn't know what to make of 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 the the data that comes out of these devices. But if you're, you know, if you're an experienced physicist used to making these devices, then right. you kind of know how they how they should look. It's something you check. It's something you check, and you'd and okay. you would you know the people that would be reading his papers would have been people that have made these devices themselves, yeah, yeah. and so the, and you know so you need to fool them but he, he you know remarkably got lazy you'd think when you're trying to pull the wool over the entire mm. physics world's eyes you'd you wouldn't necessarily get lazy but he was just doing this at an incredible rate of knots right i mean even if he was fabricating it this was still a phenomenal workload does uh, he work anywhere in physics now no no so he's he's oh, he's obviously um, run away yeah he's obviously not um hiring material oh. <laughs> and it was quite a scandal you know because of course bell labs is, yeah. a, is a famous um We're talking big rep yep big big reputation and so they took a big hit from that yeah. it was pretty embarrassing for them far out but you know so we we like to think in science that we you know, every, yep. we're all trustworthy, but that's why we have peer review. That's why we check each other's work. That's why we replicate each other's work. You know, to try and make sure that we that we stay honest. How water freezes apparently was another yeah question that got mired in a scandal. Yeah, so that that's this is an interesting one. This is this also this took a, this took a while to sort out, and it, it has to do with what happens to water when you cool it below its freezing point, um, and and it's and keep it water. So, so this is this is actually pretty easy to do. Um, uh, water, um, when it when it wants to freeze, it needs something to help it nucleate, right? So that so that you need something to nucleate those ice crystals. A dust particle, or something. Uh, yeah, and usually it's a dust particle. Um, and if you've um, you know if you're getting hit by a by a hailstone, mm -hmm. some some dust particle caused a droplet of water to freeze right. in the upper atmosphere and land on your head or on your car. Um, but you can get something called freezing rain, actually. So this is something that, that I came across in Canada, um, where where there's there isn't enough dust in the air, and the water comes down. It's below freezing point. Um, and when it hits you, that's when it decides to nucleate, <laughs> and so it will freeze on impact. And it's actually a big problem for um, power lines, right? So they get in the winter ah. in Canada, they'll have power cuts because uh, this freezing rain will hit the power lines, and it freezes, and so you get these big icicles building up on power lines, which eventually take them down. I see. So, so the question is, I see. Yes, I see. Very good, Graham. <laughs> You're on fire this week. <laughs> 
Um, but the, the question is, how, you know, what happens with, if, if you're really, really careful, keep all the dust away, really, really, you know, isolate that water yeah. and keep cooling it down, you know, eventually it's going to freeze at some point, right? That the, the water will just spontaneously nucleate and form ice. But how does it do that? Does it sort of gradually become ice-like? Does it sort of gradually form an ice-like structure? Or does it, does it carry on, you know, do, do you get the sudden transition as, as we're used to when we put water right. in, the, in, in the freezer? And the way people were addressing this was through computer simulations because these are hard experiments to do. Um, so perhaps, you know, let's use computer simulations. We can model water in the computer and we can try and figure out what's going on. But they're pretty intricate, sensitive calculations and mm. you have to use a lot of computer time. And so there were two groups um, in the U.S., that were trying to solve this problem. What what eventually happens to water in competition with in each competition other. with each other using um, similar com- computer codes, but not the same. And they weren't sharing their codes, um, so they weren't letting the other have a look at, at the codes because they were trying to get there first. Mm-hmm. But the problem was they were getting different answers. So one group was saying, "No, hang on." The, the the water actually gradually becomes ice. So when you hit this point at minus forty, where where you can no longer supercool that water, it just it just gradually turns into ice. The other group was saying no, um, it it it's you know it's, it does the spontaneous transition from a water like structure to an ice like structure. And this went on for this debate went on for a decade, and and it got quite you know you have people standing up at conferences, storming the stage, and trying to shout down the 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 opposition. Brilliant. And eventually the the you know it was the professor at UCLA. He he eventually retired, um, and the uh, the younger researcher who'd been part of his team eventually did share his code with the group at Princeton, mm-hmm. and they found a bug in the code. For uh, how many years were they it, living with a bug? It, yeah, it'd been a decade. Um, a very, very subtle one. And they're still arguing as to whether it's a bug or a feature, to be honest. Okay. But it looks like it's a bug. Um, and so, again, this is sort of one way in which in which science can go wrong if we're not open mm. with our experiments. Right? It's so easy to overlook something subtle. And in mm. some way, it's, it's you know, you feel very sorry for the people at UCLA. They... they they were trying to do their best, um, and they had this error. And had they shared their work, had they shared their code, that error would have been picked up a lot earlier, and they wouldn't have had egg over their face. Had the people making the uh, predator-free 2050 postage stamp um, asked somebody, that's not a New Zealand butterfly. Oh, really? Unbelievable, <laughs> oh, eh? no. Yeah. Oh, dear. Anyway, it's the same sort of thing. <laughs> yep. Okay. Now a breaking scandal. Yeah, so this is so this is what this is what got me thinking about scandals and, and physics. This is this is um one that's that would be big news. I mean this would be massive news. And this is one of the the weird things about it is it's quietly leaked out. It hasn't been there's been no dramatic announcement. But this is a group of Indian researchers who claim They've made a room temperature superconductor. Oh, this sounds like cold fusion. Well, yeah, well, yeah, it's it, but it's kind of in some ways it's a little bit more plausible than I mean, cold fusion. No one had any idea how that how that would work. Would right? Work. I mean, yeah, it just yeah. it just was you know, but but room temperature superconductivity. It's you know we've made we've been gradually increasing the temperature at which superconductors will operate. Now this is a big jump, right? We're 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 nowhere near room temperature at the moment. We're at the temperatures of liquid nitrogen, right? right? So sort of about a minus um, 130 degrees C, something like that. Um, and 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 these these folk are actually saying they've got something operating at 77 
degrees Celsius, um, which is pretty pretty radical. Um, and and then it's just it's quietly leaked out. You know, warm they, water, hot water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could operate it in you know in a in a in a, um, in a, in a okay. hot bath. You know, I'm not sure why you'd want to, but you could. Um, but so they haven't made any big announcement. You know, there's no, there hasn't been any press conferences or media. They just quietly posted this paper. Um, on, on on the physics archive. This, this is where we we often put our papers up um, uh, in advance of them being published in a mainstream journal. But if you've got a really really hot result, mm. you'll tend to hold on to it and send you know keep it keep it under wraps, and and you'll do it you know you'll have a round of publicity when it comes out. But these guys just quietly put this thing out there, and then you know people noticed physicists mm-hmm. noticed and have started working on trying to verify this, um, and you know. Sounds too good to be true. I mean, we'd love to have room temperature superconductors. That would be fantastic. They allow us to carry very high currents, mm. and and we don't lose. It would Im- energy. improve efficiencies by so much, it, wouldn't it? It would. And, and energy required. And the other thing that that superconductors do is they generate really high magnetic fields, right? So we'd have levitating trains. Um, we'd be able to um, make uh, aircraft engines much more efficient. Um, we could reduce the size of a of an aircraft engine by a half. Um, make the, you know reduce the fuel usage, mm. have them fly further. You know it'd be fantastic. So we we definitely want these things, but um, someone a couple of weeks ago noticed something about the noise. This noise stuff again. This noise stuff. <laughs> so if there's any budding physics um, impersonators out there, if you're gonna if you're gonna pull off a pull off a good um, physics deception, be very careful about your noise because they noticed that there was noise in one figure. That was identical to the noise in another figure for a different type of experiment in this paper. Uh-huh. And so, mm, so first of all, it's a fantastic claim. Mm-hmm. It's been released in a very strange way. There's been hasn't been a lot of publicity, and then there's there looks to be dodgy data um, in this paper. Why do people think they can get away with it? Have other I, people gotten away with it before? I. You know, we hope not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. it's but usually, something ends up working or not. Yeah, that's you, right. It's, it's a hell yeah. of a, You're going to have to. If you say you've got superconductivity yep. at room temperature, yep. um, we should be seeing some amazing stuff really yep. soon. No, absolutely. But it's like the kid who can't help lying at yeah. school. Um, it's and this be is not. Out. And this is not like Schoen. This is not like the 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 German. Um, young German who was who was anticipating what was about to come and just getting there mm. first. This is a big bold claim right. that as you say if it really does work well you know we're going to we're, we're going to see this stuff right people will be able to replicate it so it's, i don't know what the I don't, it's hard to understand what's what's gone on has it been some people. Sort of misunderstanding in a laboratory uh, um, right so it could actually just be a colossal series of errors oh there are marketing departments at <laughs> academic institutions <laughs> yes, aren't there yes, they there can are. get carried away they could but but there's been no marketing this has just been it's been it's been quietly released under the radar so it's not clear what they want what they would gain out of doing yeah. this they're not they haven't gone big for the publicity it's almost as if they weren't confident about what they were doing uh. um and then <laughs> then of course there's been people trying to you know if you put data out, there's some theorist out there who tr- who try and who try and explain why your data is doing what it's doing, right? So yeah. that, so there are people out there trying to explain this away, saying, well, it could, you know, let's see if we can come up with a theory that it could explain why we get identical noise over here to identical noise over here. But that seems like a pr- 
a bit of a long shot. Barking up so, wrong yeah, three. Yeah, I wouldn't be um, going after that one myself. Right. Um, so I don't know. You know, this is we, we will find out um, presumably over the next few months as to what's gone on, and maybe there'll be some resignations. You yeah. know, it's a prestigious. It's the Indian Institute of Technology, so it's right. a prestigious research institute in India. Um, and some of the people that are named on the paper are, are actually pretty prominent. Oh hell! So, um, yeah, who knows? So it's not just cowboys. No, no. Far out. All right. Fascinating, as always. Sure, and handy scandals in science. Oh, and I could love to recommend. I shall recommend. Um, Great feuds in science is a good book. I haven't read that one. Oh, just, oh, pistols at 10 paces, all that sort of <laughs> stuff. It's a really neat thing. Um, okay, thank you. And just looking forward to Grant Christie, the other side of the break, um, because I just love saying these headlines, uh, that he's, his notes. Why does the Earth rotate? Physicists think they've spotted the ghosts of black holes from another universe. No. One you might know. What's his name? Starts with P. Oh, Penrose. <laughs> Penrose, yeah, oh, okay, yeah. There we yeah. go. All yeah. right, uh, Sean Handy, thank you very much. Weekend Variety Wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Some very mouth-watering headliney stuff for astronomy news this week. Oh, strange black holes indicating another universe and all sorts of things. The Chinese are taking uh, silkworm eggs and potatoes to the other side of the moon. It sounds like fake news, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> Since you put it that way, Graham. Yeah. Um, if you go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, we've got beautiful picture of Saturn's crazy hexagon and a link to Changi, that's the Chinese mission to the other side of the moon, um, not the Pink Floyd version. But... Um, you pointed me to this. You found this online. Someone did an internship at NASA, and, yeah. and things went horribly wrong. Yeah, not a good way to start your career. <laughs> Advice to young interns, what not to do. Here it is. A woman lost her NASA internship after beefing with a former NASA engineer on Twitter. A woman named Naomi H. tweeted on Monday, August 20th, Everyone shut the f*** up. I got accepted for a NASA internship. While that's like huge news and absolutely something that anyone could be proud of, moderately unprofessional language for someone who's about to enter NASA, but I can kind of let it slide. As we'll be saying a couple of times over the course of the story, could have ended there, but it didn't. Nearly a full day after her original tweet, Homer Hickam replied with one word, language. Who cares, right? Some old jackass doesn't like the F-bomb? Big deal. But that's not just any old jackass. Homer Hickam is a former NASA engineer and author of the memoir Rocket Boys, which was adapted into the film October Sky starring Jake Gyllenhaal. But Naomi, who clearly hasn't done her research, a big red blaring flag for somebody about to enter the National Aeronautics Space Administration, didn't realize that. She thought she was just dealing with some Twitter troll. So she replied to Hickam, suck my f***ing balls, I'm working at NASA. To which he responded, and I'm on the National Space Council that oversees NASA. Boom! Okay, well, it could have ended right there, but again, it didn't. Because soon after he responded, Hickam started being attacked by Naomi's followers on Twitter. NASA actually saw all this going on because of the harassment Hickam was enduring and fired Naomi H. from her internship. So she deleted her Twitter account. But this is yet another example of social media's ability to create instant communication and oftentimes disastrous overreaction. 
Oh dear. Oh dear, 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 dear. <laughs> haven't we always, haven't we all done that at some stage? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> d- d- varying degrees, but that's spectacular at oh, NASA. Oh yeah, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, good one. Alrighty, um, let's go to the, our picture of spectacular Saturn first. Um, and there's an aurora. Uh, Saturn has aurora, and it looks bright as neon lights and as big as the Earth almost, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, those are images, the auroral images are taken in ultraviolet by the Hubble Space Telescope from, you know, in orbit around the Earth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and the, a lot of the image was uh, done, built up from the ones that uh, uh, Cassini produced. Uh, so they have really fabulous images. So they've blended the two together. But, I mean... Uh, so, yeah, the auroral displays at the magnetic field. It's got a very strong magnetic field because it spins fast on its axis. Oh, does it? Oh, yeah. And so it's uh, like Jupiter spinning rapidly. So it's got this sort of uh, strong, very strong magnetic field. The faster something spins, the stronger the magnetic field basically works dynamo. like a dynamo. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's, um, and it's such a huge body to be spinning that fast, mm. which is why it doesn't look quite round it's fatter at the equator oh really just like jupiter yeah. i mean you can see that uh, in you know almost in binoculars uh, right. the uh, fact that jupiter isn't a circle a sphere. no no it looks like a fat rabbitose player yeah <laughs> that's right <laughs> it's the same uniform yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um, yeah so it's a spectacular image um there's all sorts of things i don't understand uh, and maybe in future missions i'll figure it out more um but at the moment, uh, you know, there's no real plan to go back to Saturn in a great hurry. So it'll be decades probably before they do that. And still no idea. No one's managed to find a, um, an elegant equation or computer program that produces that weird hexagon. No, not yet. I mean, it's something to do with the uh, the particular rotation rate and probably the structure of the atmosphere that produces that. But I mean, one of the so one of the what, what they'd like to do, and and, and they're actually probing the uh, the sort of outer layers of Jupiter right now, um, sort of uh, using radar and all sorts of techniques. So they're the spacecraft that's there, and uh, you know some of what they learn from that they'll be able to translate to Saturn because they're similar kind of bodies. They're both gas giants. Mm. Jupiter's three times the mass of Saturn, but but, uh, I mean, the, the fundamental mechanics will be similar um, and probably the composition is about the same. So, you know, what they're going to learn from Jupiter, they're going to be able to hopefully transfer to Saturn and understand a lot more about Saturn as well. Okay. Now, Changi, Chinese's mission, the Chinese mission to the other side of the moon, um, the side that we don't see because it's in lockstep yeah, with yeah, us. The, yeah, the far side, I think, is probably the best. Uh, people uh, you often find in the media talking about the dark side of the moon, but that sort of... Yeah. Obviously, Pink Floyd airheads that are sort of <laughs> don't understand it's not dark, some of the basic things. It's no more dark than the side that's facing us. No, but a poetic license, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a dark in the sense that it's unknown. I think mm. they used to call Africa the dark continent, mm. didn't they? Partly because it was just unknown. Yep. Um, but uh, so I guess you can you can do that if you like. But the far side is probably the better one. Um, but anyway, uh, so this will be the first attempt. Uh, later this year to land a spacecraft on the backside of the moon mm-hmm. uh, and uh, do all sorts of, they've got all sorts of interesting experiments to do. Uh, the problem is when something's on the backside of the moon, on the far side, you can't talk to it by radio because, you know, the communications can't go through the moon. So you have to actually pre-position another satellite uh, in orbit around uh, 
that. In fact, it's not an orbit around the moon, it's an orbit around a spot beyond the moon. Uh -huh. um, but it always uh, can see the Earth and it can see the spacecraft. And so the, what's the, the little rover down on the surface will be able to send transmissions to that satellite, which will beam them back to Earth and vice versa. So they'll be able to control uh, the spacecraft uh, on the, well, the uh, rover on the moon through that relay. So it's some clever maths, finding that little spot for the thing? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a well known. It's been known since sort of the time of sort of eighteenth um, century oh, okay. and so on that the the moon has to have these sort of uh, spots. They're special um, uh, orbital. They have special orbital characteristics. Uh, okay. that, uh, a sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. So you're actually in orbit around uh, an empty piece of space, but it's where the forces of gravity are simply. Happen because of the Earth and the Moon and the rotation of around the Earth and so on. It's uh, it uh, it provides a stationary pointer which you can actually put a satellite into orbit around. Okay, and what are they doing there? Why? Uh, well, they're, they're taking potatoes. Well, <laughs> they're they're taking various sort of things there to see how they go on the Moon. It's a sort of kind of a different kind of um, exploration, I think you could say, than what sort of the Europeans and the Americans have done. They're taking silkworm eggs. Yes. To see what happens. I mean, uh, fair enough. I mean, I mean, the, you know, when uh, what is it, Surveyor Three that they recovered the camera off the mm. second Apollo mission or third Apollo mission uh, landed nearby and brought their camera back, and then they found there were apparently uh, there were bacteria that that had been on it when it was launched. They, you know, you can't get them perfectly clean, yeah. and these bacteria are apparently still viable after sitting on the moon for three years. So, so the even though it's exposed to this radiation, there will be sort of some forms of life that will be more tolerant of mm -hmm. that a human being wouldn't. Mm. But uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I mean, the gravity's lower. It's one-sixth of that of the Earth. Um, I suppose that, I don't know if that affects something on a sort of a very small scale. But, mm. well, anyway, why not try it? Culturally apt. I mean, the I mean, Americans... As long as they don't also like breeding and you end up with a seething <laughs> mass of silkworms when you turn up there, they really like it on the moon. Right. They have to find some mulberry leaves. They have to go in there with a can of fly spray. Um, the Americans took a golf club, so why not... That's right. And, uh, and I mean, a golf you buggy. know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not, uh, it's not the only experiments they're doing. They're doing some really uh, useful stuff. Um, and uh, they've got this rover that they can drive around on the surface, mm -hmm. um, and it's basically proving that it's possible. That's, uh, I guess, uh, what their their key thing is uh, the mission and uh, yep. developing the technology that they need to do it because they're working completely independently of the Europeans and Americans. They apparently they on purpose. Uh, uh, I don't think they were invited to be part of the things. Oh. You know, there would be too much concern about technology transfer or something. I guess that's probably the both reason. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know exactly. All right. Now, the Japanese, uh, Hayabusa 2, it's almost ready to go and collect some samples from this asteroid Ryugu. Yeah, well, they achieved the amazing feat of uh, actually catching up with Hayabusa, uh, uh, with uh, Ryugu, and uh, getting into orbit around this tiny body. It's only a kilometre across or so, so its gravity is very weak, so it's an extremely challenging technical achievement to, to actually get into orbit. And they've been brought it in close and looked at, uh, got some close-up pictures of it. I think they got down to less, uh, about 700 metres above the surface. They surveyed it. Uh, they were doing that to figure out where did they wanted to land. They had, I think they had about three, at least three landers that they can bring down onto the surface, grab a sample oh, and really? leave. Um, and they were going to pick different areas on, on uh, 
the asteroid because they figured before they left that it, you know there'd be big differences from one part to the other. We saw that on that comet. There were big differences. Uh, so they've got three things that they yeah, they can land so in three got, different spots. I think, uh, if memory serves me correctly, they've got two two little small landers that just come off go down, touch, grab, and leave. Mm. Um, and uh, I think the main craft itself can go down and also do grab some stuff right. as well. So they're not planning to stay on the surface. Um, it's interesting how they well, anyway, just to finish the, the point, is that they've, having surveyed it, they find that it's far more uniform texture and rocky. It's everywhere. There's no particularly smooth places. So they've chosen the bits with the least rubble on that, and that's they've chosen one place. And they're now going to mark it. Uh, they've got little marker things, about the size of a, a tennis ball, um, with little spiky things on the outside. And they bring these things down, and they stick onto the asteroid. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can just gently bring them down, and they just stick on. Um, and the satellite can then use those as locators to. So, because what they want to do is come down straight down onto the surface. They don't want to be moving relative, like crossing across the surface. They want to come straight down on the surface with no sideways motion and bring the speed down to zero as they reach the surface. So it's quite a complicated manoeuvre, very delicate, and they use these little, um, if you like, the kind of like these uh, tennis ball things that uh, as markers that they've pre-placed there. Inside those is the names of thousands and thousands of people who signed up and had their names uh, added to this little um, engraving wow. sort of electronic thing that's inside the... Uh, in, inside the ball, um, that has no function except that if you nice are one idea. of those people, your name will be on that thing for long after right. uh, your um, family line has ceased to have any meaning. Right. Um, so that that's an interesting thought. How big is this thing again? How uh, rough, roughly, Ryugo? Oh, it's a, it's in the order of a kilometre across, okay. something in that order. So uh, it's about twice the size of the one that uh, NASA's currently closing in on. Okay, Bennu. Right, let's go straight to uh, a crazy headline that sounds like fake news. Uh, but this is astronomy and strange things. Well, our universe is a strange thing. Physicists think that they've spotted the ghosts of black holes from another universe. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is um, this is uh, the work of, uh, well, it's one of the, the key people involved in it is Roger Penrose, who's always sort of famous for coming out with sort of pretty off-the-planet sort of ideas. Um, the big puzzle that cosmologists have is that the, um, the physical constants of our universe seems finely tuned so that if they were out by just a minuscule fraction of what they are, if they've changed their values, then life couldn't have existed. So how do you explain that? Do you explain it as having a huge number of universes and we just happen to be life has started in the one fluky one that had the right values of these constants? Or is there some other explanation? And Roger Penrose has always been on this, uh, followed this idea that that he didn't like this idea of the sort of infinite number of little universes um, that uh, popping into existence and it just happens to be every now and again one that could allow human beings to exist. So, uh, yeah, so what his idea is, is that basically the universe... Uh, has undergone, uh, well, it undergoes, um, a, it's, it's constantly having big bangs, essentially. I mean, it, it goes off, it uh, stars and planets and all that sort of stuff forms, it continues to go on, it's like 
you know, like young like our universe but gradually what happens is as it as time goes by all the stars burn out um, and all the matter that's finally left eons into the future which will happen with our universe will actually end up uh, just as black holes so that all that you'll be left with in this empty universe no light just these remnant supermassive black holes um, and over eons of time they evaporate that's sort of the mm-hmm. Hawking radiation, yep. Stephen Hawking's great uh, contribution. So these gradually evaporate, and they leave behind radiation. Very weak, but it's there when it evaporated. And then what happens is that out of that big empty universe, uh, another universe sort of undergoes an expansion phase. And basically that's like one we're in. And the universe is... And, so the, the new universe would go through the same phase and then it would have butt off another one and so on into the... You know, it's been doing that forever, basically. Mm. Um, don't ask me why. I don't think anyone's asked that question yet. Probably have, but I don't know if anyone's worth asking that question just yet. Uh, we don't know that this has happened. But the idea is that the, the mapping of the cosmic microwave background, which was sort of done... Um, um, started by Kobe and then um, more recently by Planck in great detail. They've got really precision measurements of the background temperature of the universe. And what Roger Penrose and his associates have claimed is looking at that pattern of radiation. You've probably all seen the uh, the, the sort of an oval picture of uh, red and blue, sort of just looks yeah. like a random pattern. Um, they're looking for uh, any signs of departure from completely randomness. And so what they claim is as parts of that diagram where they reckon that there's sort of excess radiation, a very tiny effect. But statistics... Uh, other, other people claim that it's... Yeah, well, other people claim that it's 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 just... You know, just measurement error. There's nothing oh. in it, so we don't know the answer to that yet. But the, the, I guess the point of this paper is it's kind of an interesting concept, um, because basically, if you start off with one universe that inflates, it goes on and does the whole thing, uh, ends up as a black hole, empty, just filled with black holes. They evaporate. You end up with an empty universe, and another one buds off, and that goes on infinitely into the future. Uh, then that means that the you can ex- that that can explain why the physical constants. Uh, have ended up in those particular values. Oh. Um, and that, so that when the next time a universe pops into existence, everyone that pops into existence out of that situation is going to have uh, sort of conditions that would allow life and atoms and so okay. on to exist. Although we shouldn't get too carried away about exactly how um, amenable our universe is to life because 99.99999 recurring percent of it is just absolutely awful for life. Uh, yeah, but it's f- full of atoms and as soon as you've got atoms, basically the periodic table of atoms uh, okay. and you can have protons and electrons and so on, particles like that, that allow you to have the physical matter that we, our world's made of, mm. then uh, you know, the, so long as you've got atoms then there's a chance that they'll accumulate, there'll be planets form and life can evolve. I mean, uh, but you know, the, the, if Unless your constants are of particular values, you can't even have atoms. Okay. And so you, th- th- in that case, we don't believe that it would be possible to have anything like the sort of the biological life that we have. Douglas Adams is, uh, uh, used to make uh, an analogy, which was kind of neat. He imagined being a puddle and considering just how amazingly, perfectly shaped the space he was in. It was just must be made for me. Yes, <laughs> it had to be designed. 
Well, you know, this is, it's a deep philosophical question, isn't yeah. it? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I suppose you can have an alternative thing that you have some metaphysical creator that happens to sort of know a bit more physics than we do and mm. sort of can uh, churn these things out. And uh, But, uh, you know, a lot of people don't like that sort of theory much and want a sort of a more sort of... Um, Prosaic. Uh, well, a more physically based... Um, mm theory that doesn't involve metaphysical information. Yeah, it's an answer that actually asks more questions, way more questions, <laughs> yeah, well, that's doesn't right. it? Where did that thing come exactly. from? All right. Um, now, why does the Earth rotate? This is a really simple question. You'd think so, doesn't it? I mean, basically, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, the, the solar system, when it first formed, formed out of a, a vast cloud of rotating gas, mm. Uh, most of that rotating gas went into the sun. Uh, the planets all orbit the sun in the same way. So that rotation that that original cloud had uh, is preserved in the rotational. We don't have one planet going one way, one another, or anything mm -hmm. like that. They all rotate the same way um, around the sun. Uh, the individual rotations of the planets are a little different. I mean, in the sense that uh, you know our planet's rotating once every 24 hours, which is a quite a fast rotator. Mm. Um, Venus is about two. 240 days, but it goes backwards. So it's rotating the opposite way. So, you know, what's happened to Venus? Has it been hit by something in the past? It could be that it's got a very thick atmosphere and that actually creates friction or drag and mm. it's slowed down and then just sort of started to go back the other way. It's, a, it's still a bit of a mystery. You've got Uranus that's uh, rotating, but it's tipped over on its side. Like a barrel. And it's obviously had a collision in the past. I think there's been new work done on that recently. But, I mean, this, this whole process is in the universe. There's a puzzle into the universe as to where this rotational stuff comes from. If you start off with a, a universe, it starts from just a point as a Big Bang, starting from a point and expanding upwards, which is the, sort of the, sort of the current sort of paradigm. Um, you know, how, where does the... Well, where does magnetic fields come from? That's a, still a puzzle. And, and all the rotational effects in the universe also are uh, harder to explain mm. when you've got a, just everything expanding from a point outwards. So where does the rotational um, effects that we see come into it? Um, so, the, uh, But certainly when we look at our galaxy, our galaxy's rotating. Um, there are other galaxies rotating around us. We've got little ones around us. We're being dragged around and there's motions of galaxies as well. All of those motions impart a rotation on things. For example, you know, the rotation of gas clouds will be affected, in our galaxy, will be affected by the galaxy's rotation to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so a gas cloud that we look at now that seems like a, that's just sitting there like the Orion Nebula or something like that, it doesn't have a huge rotational speed, but as just like a dancer, um, as going. it starts to collapse, they bring their arms and they spin faster mm -hmm. and they're on an ice, um, ice um, skating or something like that, uh, they can control that. And it's exactly the same with a big, huge gas cloud. It's got a lot of rotational energy there, and but as it starts to break up into little clumps, denser and denser clump stars, that all that rotational energy has to be preserved in all the stars that are made and all the planets that formed around the stars. Right, OK. And we're at 23 degrees, most likely because we had an accident. 
Yes, well, that's uh, possible. I mean, we, we certainly it was pr pretty near, almost, well, almost settled that you know the earth, the moon was formed out of a big collision. So the Earth underwent a huge collision, um, and uh, and of course the Earth's rotation rate isn't constant; it uh, fluctuates uh, in the order of um, milliseconds um, on a time scale of tens of days. Uh, and this has been mapped out for a long time now with uh, high precision measurements you can make. From satellites, we need some oil on our bearings or something. What's going on? Well, it's there's, there's all sorts of effects. There's, uh, for example, it's affected by motion of um, magma inside the Earth. Oh yeah. Um, the uh, plate tectonics, all that sort of stuff on a longer scale. So the and also the Earth is slowing down its rotation rate because the Moon's moving away. Mm. And so uh, that's you know so the. The and that the Earth is as a body is overall is 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 slowly slowing down because of the frictional drag with our oceans, the tidal bulge right. of our oceans, as we've talked about before, caused by the Moon as being is uh, creates a sort of a, a basically a weak braking motion uh, action to the rotation of the Earth, and so the Earth is slowing down, um, and this has been confirmed if you look at total eclipses of the Sun, which we can calculate very precisely. Uh, and then you go back to antiquity and find that some clay tablet somebody saw a, a eclipse on a certain day, a total mm -hmm. eclipse. You can work out whether they could have seen it um, at where they were or whether it would be offset by a time error, which is the fact that the Earth was rotating slightly faster in wow. antiquity than it does now. So they can actually measure over, t over th uh, that's over a period of like three or 4,000 years, you can do those sort of measurements using that basis. Nowadays we use uh, satellites to measure what's happening right now mm. um, and we know that when the Earth first um, underwent the collision with the Moon uh, that formed the Moon, it was probably rotating more like about six hours mm. instead of 24. So it slowed down a lot That's over the last it. sort of four billion years. Yeah. Alright. Uh, thank you very much, Grant. And we will talk again soon. Thanks, Graham. I'm off for a couple of weeks going to see a band in Dunedin. So Ooh, there you have go. a good one. Yeah. Cheers. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Have I told anybody I'll be taking a great, a great, I'll be taking a break for a couple of weeks. Uh, Ryan Bradley will be in. He is a charming broadcaster. And uh, we'll fill in with some Elan. Speaking of fancy-ass words, Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. Why do cops cop and why do we mull something over? Who would mull of a day? You generally mull over, don't you? The answers to those questions and more shall be answered by Max Cryer uh, later in the next hour. If you want to ask Max something, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Uh, the email form there is plainly labelled and you click on the thing that says click here for this weekend's programs or this weekend's lineup and you get everything that's happening this weekend uh, Saturday and Sunday nights this year I usually get that up when I say I um, I write it down and somebody else does the hard work for me I don't know if that's hard work but it, whatever uh, it goes up on a Friday and uh, it's up there now. So if you want to know what's on the rest of the weekend, uh, it will be right in front of you, as well as being able to uh, watch stuff and listen back to tons of other things that have happened on the Weekend Variety Wireless. It's 9 o'clock. Football scores are therein. Spoiler alert.